This is Family Office Intel at Denton's, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actual ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the modern family office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. Today, I have the pleasure of having our guest, John Preisler, join us today. Thanks for joining, John. Thanks, Eddie. Pleasure to be on your podcast. John, talk to us about how your how you got into the family office space in general, and then your background before that. I don't think anyone really, at least in my generation, planned to go into the family office space. You always kind of fall into it. So um, maybe it'll help to go back into uh, my roots and and maybe uh, some deep therapy and, and how I ended up in uh, fam- in the family office world. I grew up in Wisconsin, in Madison, Wisconsin, and in, in the 1970s and 80s, there wasn't a lot of finance there. So there wasn't, I think for folks who grew up in the New York City area, there's parents all over who are in finance. There's no one in finance, at least back in the day in Wisconsin. At least it was, they were hard to find. And if they did go into finance, they left the state, unless they maybe worked for the State of Wisconsin Investment Board, but that was far and few between. So I think the way I kind of fell into this route, it all goes back to baseball cards. I collected baseball cards. I think today I have like, I don't do it anymore, but in the basement I have 40,000 baseball cards or something like that. And you start, it's kind of like reading, learning about stocks or learning about companies. You, you look at the back of the card, you learn about how consistent they are, how, you know, how they did in the minor leagues, you know, are their stats improving? You start to make a, make a bet. You start to think about, well, how will they play this year? How will they play next year? And I started to game players, try to find collect cards of players I think whose value will go up over time. And so, I think those are like were early learnings um, about making investments and understanding about you know supply and demand. So what did I learn? I learned, I think important things. You're not always going to be right. Um, I'll give an example. I cornered the market in Ernie Ryle's baseball cards. Uh, he was a shortstop for the Milwaukee Brewers, and I thought he was going to be great. And uh, I don't think anyone has heard of Ernie Ryle. So I learned really quickly, um, if you're going to make a big bet, um, just make sure you have a, an escape escape hatch and uh, don't lose all your marbles. Also, I, made pro- I learned about scarcity. I was sure Don Mattingly was going to be the Hall of Fame, and so I accumulated a whole bunch of Don Mattingly cards. And in fact, I had an opportunity and I did it. I did the trade. I got 30 Don Mattingly rookie cards for my rookie, Sandy Koufax. Well, there's millions and millions of Don Mattingly cards and only a handful of, a few handfuls of Sandy Koufax rookie cards. So it was a terrible trade, but I hopefully uh, I learned from my mistakes and I'll try not to repeat them in the, in the future. So long story short, after that, ended up at the University of Wisconsin as a local. And I, a friend gave me the book Liar's Poker, and that sounded like, well, a lot like trading baseball cards, so I think I'm going to do that. So I remember I, all I wanted to do was get out of Wisconsin and find a job on Wall Street. And it just wasn't really, I didn't really have any connections, and I didn't really have any ends anywhere. So fortunately, this was in the day of pre-internet, I applied on paper to a job in a company in Detroit, Michigan called Oldie Discount Brokers, and there was three boxes you could check. Uh, you could be a, you could be a broker, you could be a trader, or you could be a research analyst. And I'm like, well, it's, trading sounds like fun. I'll just check trading. And lo and behold, I got a phone call to go interview in Detroit, Michigan. So 
ended up getting a job and moving into a corporate apartment in downtown Detroit overlooking a tiger field. And before you knew it, I was past my series 63. By the way, if you failed your 63, you're fired. So you had good incentive to pass it. And uh, it, was a, it was a terrific place to learn because no one, first of all, most of the group that went into the under the trading floor, they weren't from Michigan. It was kind of a post-college fraternity. In the sense, everyone everyone bonded through, I think, just being not from their home state, being away from their families for the first time, and also being in the being in the professional workforce for the first time. Oldie had a really interesting niche. They were they benefited from what Charles Schwab benefited from from the slashing and commission rates, but Schwab did it on, on a scale platform, and that's why they're around today. Oldie did it with human brokers and kind of the old-fashioned call-up clients, build a book and and, and work that client book. Um, it, w- it was a terrific place to work because you learned at a qu- you, you learned on the job. And if, if you failed, you were fired. If you did well, you survived. Fortunately, I survived there. But you learned you learned how to trade. You learned about tops and bottoms. You learned how you saw, I learned how, to, how you, you saw how stocks were affected by retail order flow. You learned about momentum. Um, you could you could figure out how to like top tick a stock or bottom tick a stock. You you could pretty much flush a stock out or, or or drive drive sellers to come out just by where you move move what stock to. Learn about reading the charts. I had to learn how to read a tape. Um, I it, we were our all our all our flow at at Oldie was was retail flow, so it was lots of thousand share lots or five hundred share lots or two hundred share lots, and the other side of the trade would be institutions. So you'd learn. Kind of the mentality of institutions. You also learn how to have a thick skin and not take any of this stuff too personally. Um, someone's always going to be angry or mad or under duress because there's money at stake, and mostly just people pop off and they apologize later. So it's just learning. None of this. Just be grateful. Don't take any of this too seriously because you're just happy uh, to be where you are today. Um, being in Detroit for two and a half years was enough, and I had the opportunity to go to San Francisco, California. I left uh, Detroit. I remember it was a snowy day, and um, in April, <laughs> and I landed in uh, San Francisco. To snowy Minnesota. days in April happen in Michigan. I think people should. Be yes, there. and it, I remember I just landed in San Francisco. You know, down um, at the airport, and it's always a little warmer by the airport, but I got off the plane, it was 72 and sunny, and I think they could have offered me a a six pack of beer and and I would have taken the job um, for my salary. So anyways, long story short, uh, Robertson Stevens is one of the four horsemen in in the market. So in those days, along with Alex Brown and Morgan Stanley and, um, I mean, Montgomery and um, Hamburg and Quest, and uh, it was just, Better to be lucky than good, and ended up in a terrific spot where they were bringing all these tech companies public. And Robertson Stevens went through a bunch of buyouts, and lo and behold, it was the uh, dot com crash that ended up closing the firm, along with uh, Bank of America owning Robertson Stevens, then buying their competitor. Instead of merging the two, they just shut down Robertson Stevens. And I always thought I needed to live in New York at least once in my life. And this is. 19 this is 2002 and right after right after 2001 moved to new york in 2002 ended up running a trading desk there this was again like in the post.com trauma 
Um, that firm was owned by a British South African bank who decided to close the U.S. office, and that was my pivot point to go to the buy side. I had enough of I did was on the sell side for ten years. Really wanted to switch hats and be on the buy side. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet um, my colleague today, who is running a hedge fund, and he hired me to be a trader at his hedge fund. And so that 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 got me to the buy side, and again like whole other bunch of learnings are about to occur a great a great pivot point in my life where you know i was trading stocks in the past on behalf of the hedge funds mutual funds of the world and now i'd be trading uh for one investor and and their client and his clients so it's a, a terrific opportunity to just gain tons of insights and learnings um as as an investor a lot of trading experience got into the hedge fund world and then specifically, how what was the first family office thing that you ended up doing? So in 2006, my colleague decided to uh, return all the outside capital and become a single family office, and that, and that's a whole new chapter that I've been on involved since 2006. Fantastic. And then uh, in terms of you know your role today, what's you know because it kind of involved into that. Uh, you know, working with that family office, you know, what was it like after you returned capital and, and turned to a family? How different was it? Obviously, the size and, and the scope was very different. Um, so, so this is back in it was 2006, as as you well know, that I'm sure there's, I think there's a couple certificate programs today, but back in 2006, there were none. There are no colleges or universities catering to, to creating the future family office c-suite there weren't any books i if I, today you know one of the best books out there is the family office a comprehensive guide for advisors practitioners and students written by mr william woodson and, and edward b marshall um there's you're one of a handful of books today really and, and it's 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 amazing um you know there's a few others but there really isn't, even today, a, a big deep dive you can find on family offices. So back in 06, there were none, or nearly none. You could get white papers. I think E&Y maybe had a white paper, and some of the sell side brokers had, had white papers. But they were kind of high-level stuff and not granular enough to really get you going. There was a small ecosystem of family offices that you could try to get connected to, but... Eddie, you're one of the best family office networkers I know, and you know how hard it is to to make those connections. And back in 06, as a family office, you didn't really have touch points to make a lot of those connections. There weren't tons of family office conferences. It was really hard to, hard to find other people that were running family offices. So we did it the old-fashioned way, which is just blindly walk in the dark and stumble around until we find what we wanted and to do as a family office. Um, the first year or two, we pretty much ran it as a hedge fund without clients, which was not the best thing to do um, on, a, on a lot of le levels. Um, we we also like want to, we, we did a lot of research on our own. We looked at different um, ways to invest. Uh, we studied quant trading or quant investing we looked at endowment models. And so over time, we kind of decided, you know, where we wanted to be. The hedge fund I was at was mostly equities. 
And so we wanted to diversify our assets out of just equities into longer duration investments. So that's, you know, private equity, venture growth, buyout, it's real estate, um, and, and other income, as well as other kind of non-correlated assets. It's really hard day one to just pivot your portfolio. So it, it takes time to do that. Also, it's it's in hindsight, it's lucky we didn't, you know, pile into so we converted to a single family office in 06. It's really lucky we didn't pile into real estate in 2007. Um, that probably would have been a mistake heading into a global financial crisis, um, as well as a whole host of other investments. So being patient was really a benefit um, in, in hindsight, but there's tons of learnings that, that we discovered right away. And mostly it's it's it, you cut your teeth from making mistakes and hopefully don't repeating the, those mistakes. But there, there's there's you know handfuls and handfuls of learnings. Uh, How would you break up those learnings? Is it is it mostly op, is it mostly operational in terms of the uh, the learnings or how does it kind of fit into it? Because it's it's very different when you're working. Yeah, it's it's both. I think they're intertwined. So just I just have kind of like these kind of learnings will help anyone in a family office, I think. Um, and it goes from operational to investing. Like it's just ABC, always be curious. Like in that, that extends not only to like investigating companies or, but like, why do these numbers look off? Like when you get a report from your admin or, or from your prime broker or, or wherever it comes from your accountant, you know, look at, read the numbers. Like just don't assume your, your third party outsourcing folks are giving you the right numbers you know i don't think no one's doing anything intentional but people make mistakes so but you're the last line of defense you have to look at everything and you just have to be disciplined to do it you know just keep asking ask yourself questions all the time and ask the questions like if someone's showing you a deal ask yourself well, why are no all their investors passing on this deal am i the first one to see this deal am i the last one why why should i get the 30th look at this deal and invest um why are no other investors investing in this area? Um, well, maybe you come with a good answer, like they just haven't discovered it yet, or, or, you know, there's a bunch of heuristics that have caused other investors not to invest there. But maybe, on the other hand, maybe someone knows something you don't, or someone did more work and figured out there was a problem with this investment. So it's really key to be curious. Um, Another learning that just you just gets pounded into you is everything is negotiable in a, in a family office construct. Um, I'll, I'll give a plug to Ted Cedis and his Capital uh, Allocators University. They had a they had a module on negotiation uh, last week, and and we talked a lot about that. But you, in a family office, you really learn every document has to be scrubbed. Um, you either have to send it to your attorney and have them read it, get feedback. Give your attorney feedback. Um, read it yourself, obviously. If it doesn't have to go to uh, the lawyer. Um, never assume like the managing partner scrubbed it. Like they just hire someone. It's a really it's a dichotomy because the LPs pay for the legal docs, but the general part but the but the legal firm works for the for the general partner. So the all the all the advantages tend to be pushed to the general partner, even though the LPs are paying for it. Um, so don't assume even the, the managing member or general partner read read the legal doc. Um, don't don't assume just because there's a big endowment uh, or another big LP in as an investor 
and the fun that they read the doc. I've talked to other LPs, and they just said, well, we, we just assumed someone else read the doc. So even like big institutions may not read the docs or question it, or you know, it might be a more junior person on the team who did the work, and they're just not going to push for um, any legal changes. So just realize everything's pretty can be negotiable. It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. There can be, uh, you know, there can be syn synergies um, from structuring, you know, a, a better document together. Um, find something that uh, one party wants from you. That's that's not a big ask. Um, whether it's access to your network or uh, being being a really synergistic LP, there, there's a whole host of things you can do to get someone who's to change their docs that it may not be in their interest to. So it sounds like a lot of alignment questions, right? So making sure that you have the with all with all the vendors that you're talking to, regardless of banking, accounting, legal, concierge, whatever it may be. A hundred percent. I'll always ask them a lot of questions. I mean, it go, you mentioned like all these different vendors, like they'll always tell you, yes, they can do it. Um, you just ask, don't sign something the first day just because they said yes. Ask a million other people, ask their clients, ask their customers. Do it, it takes a while. You have to do your due diligence on the vendors too. Um, the salespeople, you know, they want to close. Their interest is to close you. And often what they say is, Yes, really isn't a yes. It's it's a yes, but you need a new API to connect their system to another system. And yes, you can do all this, but you need a full time person to run their software. Or um, you know, re even read the vendors docs. I mean, it's so key. It's it's like ba it's it's basic, but you can forget to do it. Um, you know, look when their renewals are. But okay, the renewal is January first, but they need sixty day notice. Make sure you get that. 60 day notice in your calendar. So it's, although everyone's seems aligned out of the gate, you know, you may not be, um, you know, down the path. So making sure you're reading some of those terms and conditions, getting, you know, there's no free lunch and, you know, there's no magic, uh, magic wand that can wave away problems. That, that's right. It all, it all starts with, you know, before you sign that contract, make sure you're really aligned. You're on, um, you know, from the contract to, to the personality you're working with. Um, and that kind of goes hand to hand with always you kind of expect something to go wrong. Um, don't panic by it. Everything's going to have a wrinkle. Something's going to take longer than expected. Um, be ready to adjust on the fly. Like you're going to have to get more info. You're going to fix a problem. Um, it's going to come up just whether it's an investment at the last second, um, before you close on it. Um, when you own the investment, something's going to happen. Um, I mean, it's great if it doesn't, but just be prepared for it to happen and realize it's just solving another problem, jumping through another hoop, and, and, and you'll solve the problem. But um, it, it happens every day, and you just hope to mitigate those problems. And the fast, the better you are at, at solving those problems is kind of being part of being in a family office where if you just be really efficient at solving problems, and then, um, and, and taking learnings from those so you don't repeat them. Um, I think everyone in a family office really has to be transparent about any issues really quickly because they, they can spider web and they're not gonna get better until they're resolved. So just to, just having a culture of trust and transparency in a family office is, is crucial. Bad news doesn't get better with telling. No, definitely Usually not. not. 
What about um, what about uh, the family office industry in general? What are you seeing as some changes? Like, are you seeing more families in, invest together? I mean, you're uh, you're very kind to, to to say you know our, you know the things that we've worked on together. But in general, you're very entrenched in this space as well, uh, and not just in the kind of East Coast, but seeing a lot of different areas. What, what kinds of trends are you seeing? I'm seeing families be able to speak more and that's a function of the different networks that are being created. I don't think there's one winner or, you know, out there. I think there's lots of different ecosystems and and they're evolving. I know when I first got in, we started the family office in 03, it was really hard to get people to talk. I think people were really nervous um, on a lot of different reasons for a lot of reasons why. But today, like, you know, in the last couple of months, I spoke with like six, or seven uh, family office CFOs around the country. And everyone's really gracious with their time and they were sharing best practices and learnings and experiences. So I th- it's just reaching out to those people. Um, they won't always reach out to you. I know I'm always willing to help others in the, in the, in the family office space um, and have conversations. It's, I think it's important because we have shared goals really that, you know, at the, at the end of the day to, to help make our family office succeed. and. We can help, and there's really not that too much competition. So, um, you know, head to head. So you're not really giving away any secrets, and we wouldn't anyways. But and I wouldn't expect them to either. But it's more of what what are the what are the learnings you can share to make everyone's lives easier. Um, and, and that network, I think, is opening up um, more rapidly. It's kind of like the nonprofit space, right? I mean, you, you, people are all doing. Uh, work in philanthropy and people share best practices quite a bit and yeah they're similar areas that they focus on but that that level of competition that you see in different industries just it doesn't seem to be uh, you know family offices benefit from that yeah i think it's still a space evolving rapidly um you know i think probably when you and I first started the family office business, it was mostly founder-led companies that had a liquidity event. And and they were founders, they were older, maybe the children were gonna run a, a sleeve of the assets, um, but they weren't, and they were maybe gonna repeat some of the things they invest in the same areas they did in the past or just diversify their assets into kind of an endowment light model. Today, you're seeing all kinds of family offices pop up. Um, you're seeing, you know, young young folks in their 30s or 40s who had, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars liquidity event, and now they have a family office. And I think there's just different iterations of it now, um, and those family offices will evolve. Um, you know, a young tech entrepreneur you know, has realized a billion dollars from the crypto business. I'm guessing they're gonna probably do more crypto things and more tech things, um, be an angel investor, do, do probably what they like best. You know, you have, you know, biotech uh, millionaires from, you know, realizing the sale of their companies and they'll probably still do a lot of things in biotech. So just like a real estate family tends to stick to real estate. Um, you just can have different iterations of family offices and those family offices will evolve too. Um, I, in our family office, we have a, we have a mission uh, to, you know, to grow the capital organically to, to fund the family philanthropy. And I think that mission helps drive us in, in being good stewards for the capital, um, knowing that, that we're trying to help people's lives. And I think most family offices um, would would 
he served well if they included some sort of that mission in, in their family office. It would give everyone purpose in the organization. It would give their staff purpose. And uh, at the end of the day, um, growing that capital could, could help, you know, thousands and thousands, millions of people. So uh, last question for you. What's the one lesson learned that you have looking back in the family office space? I know we talked about a couple of the things that you guys have implemented and, and done that road, but you, you personally, for the family office space, you know today versus what you knew back in 2006. Yeah, there's just so many. We could probably talk for, I think, hours. Um, I'll give you one because maybe we talked a lot, maybe some stuff around the operational stuff. So I'll give you something on, invest, on the investing side, which is you're always under-invested on the way up and you're always over-invested during market declines. You never underestimate how much you can lose uh, being under-invested. You think you went to cash, you think you're hedged during a market decline, which I know we haven't had in a long time. It's painful. So um, be prepared for, you know, we've had a long, a long run. So now, now's the time to adjust your portfolios or pivot them a little bit um, to, to what you think makes sense rather than after a 40% drawdown. Um, so just, you know, a lot of these family offices are new and they've been in an environment where things have gone up and up to the right. And we haven't had a ton of volatility at least since uh, March of, of 2020, but which was a pretty quick recovery, obviously. But I think just the biggest learning is just be prepared when, when things go wrong to to make sure that you're attacking and uh, in a controlled, calm manner when, when things go wrong. And because that's really going to be your opportunity at the end of the day is you're going to make you're going to make the family office lots of money during those declines. Um, and hopefully you'll be able to have enough capital to go on offense. Well, listen, John, you know, I really appreciate uh, you coming on today. If you want to get in touch with uh, John, uh, you know, or you have any questions for him, do send us an email to familyoffice at dentons.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation or so inclined, subscribe to our channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. As always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way that you can show your support. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space. Do check out our website. That is dentons.com forward slash family office. Well, that's it. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Eddie.